Welcome to Hack to Start, a podcast focused on interesting people and the innovative ways they achieve success. I'm Franco Variano. And I'm Tyler Copeland. Each week we speak with a new guest about how they created, hacked, and hustled their way to the top and distill their insights and experiences for you. The path to success isn't always linear. Hack, start, and repeat. This episode is brought to you by Breather. Find beautiful, practical spaces that you can reserve on the go. Ghost, a simple, powerful publishing platform that allows you to share your story with the world. And SoundCloud. Hear the world sounds. You're listening to episode 56 of Hack to Start. This episode features Guy Gunaratna, the co-founder of Storygami. Tyler and I wanted to invite Guy onto the show to share his unique story, transition into tech startups, and more. Guy was previously a journalist who, alongside his co-founder Heidi, wanted to tell a bigger story. Together, they produced several documentaries on human rights and won several awards. But video technology was always the limiting factor for them, and Storygami aims to solve this need. This is an amazing episode you won't want to miss, so let's get to it. Hey, Guy. Thanks for being on the show today. Hey, thanks for having me. So let's start off by getting to know a bit more about you. Where are you from? What did you study? And how did your passion for entrepreneurship develop? Sure. Well, um, I'm actually originally from London, England, um, born and bred, a um, place called uh, Neasden in northwest London. No one's ever, ever heard of that place, <laughs> but that's where I'm from. Um, I studied, um, first of all, I studied film and television, um, so kind of video-based stuff um, in my bachelor's in at Brunel University. Um, that was in West London. Um, and then uh, my master's degree was in current affairs journalism. I did that at City University, which is in central London. Um, and I guess entrepreneurship came around, um, yeah, I think during my master's. Um, I guess I was going through a bunch of different kinds of journalism, um, technical jobs um, in the media industry, and it just kind of sucked. Like I was, <laughs> I was never a really good employee. I guess um, I was always very, very impatient, um, and I didn't think, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't doing well. I guess in in companies, I wasn't, um, you know, I wasn't the best employee, um, and rather than kind of, you know try and become a good employee, I guess, uh, it kind of spurred me on into thinking, well, I could probably do a lot of this stuff better myself if I ran my own thing. Um, and, you know, I at the time, um, Heidi, um, who is now my co-founder in, at Storygami, um, I met her and she was always very entrepreneurially minded. And I guess both together, we, you know, instead of um, kind of finding a regular job type job, um, that was always uh, more in tune with with our kind of worldview. Um, if you want to do something, it's it's kind of there's having more at stake. I guess is always something that we've uh, both of us have kind of felt more comfortable within. I guess I feel more comfortable mm-hmm. within do, doing my own thing as opposed to doing something else, something else for someone else. So you're an award-winning filmmaker and have produced human rate related documentaries from places such as Sri Lanka, Uganda, and Guatemala. How did you get into filmmaking? Um, I guess that, yeah, let me think. Okay, well, I mean, after my journalism degree, um, it was around that time where, you know, just before, actually, just going back slightly, um, just before my um, journalism degree at City University, um, I started to travel a little bit more and kind mm-hmm. of um, two places that you wouldn't usually go on holiday. I mean, I went to places like um, um, the Middle East, 
um, Southeast Asia, that kind of thing. And I was always quite politically minded, and therefore that those kinds of things influenced um, the decisions I made, and therefore that's kind of what spurred me onto journalism. Um, I was always a very good writer, so I kind of um, wanted to be a journalist. Um, always good at video, um, so I wanted to combine those things and become a video journalist. Um, I kind of, you know, I'm the kind of person if I if I set my mind to to one thing, I'm going to achieve it somehow. Um, I think being a video journalist um, got into my head at a pretty young age. So I think um, doing the university degree just after that um, and then just wanted to do it straight away. I didn't want to get a regular mm -hmm. job at the BBC or something. I kind of just wanted to go out and, and shoot. Mm -hmm. um, and so for my uh, university um, thesis, I guess, I, I went to Southeast Asia and Sri Lanka, which is where my parents are from originally. Um, and at the time, there was a civil war going on. Um, and I wanted my thesis to be about um, how the media captured that civil war. So I was there in 2009, um, kind of doing my own documentary. Now, that documentary kind of became this huge deal just because uh, we, uh, myself and, and Heidi and, and a few other, uh, another photographer friend of mine kind of got access to places that CNN and the BBC didn't quite get access to. Um, and that became a, quite a big journalism story um, at the time. Um, that Civil War was like the biggest news story at the time um, around the world. I don't know if this, it picked up over here in the US, but in Europe specifically. And um, after that, just proving that, you know, right out of university, I could do that and I could do my dream job um, just straight out of university kind of gave us confidence to, to start um, our own company. Um, and then beyond that, you know, we, we did further documentaries in Uganda and uh, did something about child soldiers in northern Uganda specifically, um, media freedom in Guatemala um, very, very quickly. I, I mean, I got to do the things that I always wanted to do just purely because I didn't wait around to get a job. I kind of founded a company, did it myself, and then, you know, did um, did news stories for people like Al Jazeera News, Amnesty International. Um, just something about doing doing it because you, you can and because you have the tools to do it yourself um, gave us the confidence to, to just carry on, I guess. Um, and that was a period of three years, I guess, doing those human rights stories. Um, but that's really how we got I got into it. I, I traveled a bit, got into university, and straight away I kind of went in, went full hog into um, those kinds of dense subject matter. That's amazing. So, so you touched about it on it a little bit, but what was it like filming in all these different locations and what was the experience like? Um, it's interesting because now it's, it's a little bit more detached from me than it was. Um, for those three years, that was very much part and parcel of, of my life and very much myself. I was a video journalist, you know, um, <laughs> that was very much part of my personality. Um, but now being so detached from it after a few years of just starting another company and not doing you know, video journalism anymore, I kind of look back at it as uh, quite a testing time. Um, it wasn't easy at all to do those kinds of stories. Um, I wanted to do those stories because I wanted to tell stories that were worth telling, I guess, and wanted to go to places where those kinds of stories existed. Um, I, I was, again, very impatient to make sure that anything I was doing was was going to be worth my kind of time and solid effort. Um, but looking back on it, I always feel like, wow, I could have, <laughs> I could have uh, eased up a little bit because, you know, we went mm -hmm. straight into the child soldiers, you know, straight into media freedom, yeah. kind of sat down with heads of state. And I guess I, I kind of think perhaps I was perhaps too green and too young to actually experience those 
um, those things and actually be in those places and be exposed to such stories. Because um, a lot of the, the people I interviewed had incredibly heartbreaking stories. Um, and my job was to kind of translate or tell those kinds of stories. Um, and perhaps I, I, I wasn't as skilled as I, I probably um, thought myself to be. We did well. I mean, the company was very successful and we won uh, a couple of awards. And for people my age at that time, um, it, I did pretty well. But I think emotionally, um, it was very stressful. Um, those stories kind of stick with you beyond it. Um, you don't go to places like that, hear those kinds of stories and kind of leave them there. They kind of follow you um, along. It was very, very tough to transition away from those stories um, and kind of telling those stories. Um, but I think that the prime word was was kind of trying. It was very test. It was it tests a lot um, in terms of your character. Like it 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 makes you really question the things that you believe and the values you hold. Um, and those things now are, are, are the kinds of things I th I think about now. Not so much when I was doing it. It's just now being so detached. I I, I feel like that very much molded my my personality and and the kind of decisions I make now as a kind of a tech entrepreneur um, in a strange way. Um, but the experience at the time, it was very exciting. It was very, um, you know, it was very, it, it was leading a very kind of interesting life. But at the same time, I probably could, probably could have done with a little bit more kind of regulation in my life, I guess. <laughs> it, was, yeah. it was pretty, you know, emotional roller coaster. I could just imagine. So we'll get into it a bit later in the episode, but what was the transition like from being a journalist and videographer into the world of tech and building a company? And what were some of the challenges you had to overcome? It was pretty challenging. So, I mean, we're talking from 2011 to, I guess, 2013 when we um, founded Storygami. Around that time, it was, yeah, it was tough. It was kind of a decision um, we I made personally to kind of Think, say okay we need to do something in the video space uh, technologically the biggest hurdle I guess to go into tech space is you know what everyone says that you know you kind of need to learn to code you kind of need to learn um, the if you're going to be in tech you you do need to have some kind of grounding in the language and the in the verbiage of like being in this scene um, that was a hurdle that kind of I, I kind of uh, force myself to go go down um, the transition therefore was was testing honestly more about ego than anything else I can say that now I guess because before I, I would go from a place where I was um, I was an expert in editing kind of the technical sphere of video would be you know editing animation after effects they'd hold Adobe suite I was considered and and I was pretty good at it um, I was considered an expert in that and going from going from a space where you kind of have all your skills honed right? You feel good about what you're doing. You you're very much in tune with the tool set that you have in front of you to create whatever you're creating. In that case, it was video. So I, I knew how to edit. I knew how to add effects, and I knew how to publish great content. Um, going from that space where you're you're very comfortable into a space where you don't know the skill set, you don't know the best tools to do what you want to do. That was tough, um, and it was tough to go from you know, walking into a room and knowing your stuff to, to walk in a room and actually really being humble enough to really know that you need to learn everything to, to be um, as good as you were in the other sphere. So it's kind of crossing a discipline from a place where you were very comfortable to a place where you're not so much comfortable. That was tough. And it was more about ego than anything. As soon as you realize that you kind of maintain a humility um, that if you want to do something worthy in this discipline, in tech, then you have to... Uh, be okay with um, trying to learn as much as possible as well as um, trying to push through your vision um, and um, 
and that was that was tough, but well worth it in the end, I guess. Mm-hmm. That's that's awesome. That's some great uh, insight into into you know putting yourself out there and you know becoming a student again and learning how to do things, you know, for the yeah. first time, I guess again. Uh, yeah, I mean, sorry, I mean, one of the things that I I, I definitely want I, I've never spoken about this openly, so I kind of kind of want to mention this. Um, very early on, people are very um, worried about you know. When, when I when I transitioned from kind of being an edit video editor and um, a video guy into um, kind of front end development, it was very much okay. Maybe I can bridge the two with the tools I have. So one of the things I do as a front end developer is um, and a designer is is kind of the 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 front end UI and the UX. And without knowing a whole lot of jQuery, I could do mockups of um, what I wanted with a product, and I used the skills that I had in the previous discipline, which is After Effects, and I just animated what I wanted, right? So instead of animating um, titles for video, I would animate um, login UX. Um, basically the same thing, but I kind of used whatever tools I had at hand to, to bridge my um, learning, I guess, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I know it's not very well articulated, but a lot of people kind of get stuck thinking, oh man, I can't do any UX or UI design, even though I can probably design really good After Effects stuff, visuals. Um, well, use your After Effects skills to bridge your kind of um, your education. Um, that's what I did, and it worked out, because um, since then, motion has become a big deal in design. And I think my background in animation um, really, really uh, helped me in bridging um, the idea of motion in UI and UX design. Um, so I think being okay with using the skills you have, even if they aren't directly related, kind of just just ringing them into a place where you could use it at some in some way for for in your advantage. Um, it's something that I've learned really, really early on. That's awesome. That's really cool. So. Before we get into your your current startup, uh, Storygami, you were previously the co-founder of Kodak alongside your current co-founder, Heidi. So what is Kodak and what motivated you both to start that? So Kodak was our um, attempt (laughs) at um, figuring out a a better and a different way to um, document um, hard-hitting subject matter around the world. So we made a decision, both myself and Heidi, to tackle subject matter like um, human rights around the world, uh, media freedom, um, and do it in a way that wasn't as um, streamlined. Because a lot of the stories that we grew up with were very much um, kind of constructed in a way that are very easy sound bites, very easy to understand and digest. Um, and that's kind of prevailed through the internet age, which is weird to me. Because before, when you, I mean, when you watch the news, uh, when I was younger, when I watched the news back in the UK, um, the stories were very much uh, very similar. Um, no matter where they were, it was uh, stories that would be easily digested in two minutes, two minute sound bites. So when I started to travel and actually experience those things, going to the places that I previously only saw in news clips, uh, I knew that the world wasn't as um, pat, I guess, or as easy to understand. Things were far more nuanced and far more messy. And I wanted to make sure that if we were to tell those stories, we want to. We, I wanted to tell those stories as they were. Um, they might be a bit messy. They might not be as easy to understand or relate to, but it was the truth. Um, so we wanted to make a company that would create that kind of content, I guess, um, to go to places like northern Uganda and speak to as many people as possible, speak to get as many experiences and as many voices as possible, because that's what we experience if you go to those places. Because before that, um, you know, you would get very easy 
um, beginning, middle, and end stories about very, very nuanced subject matter, um, which might mean greater audience, but not so much um, what you really need to know. Um, so Kodok, we started that company in 2010 after experiences in Sri Lanka. Um, and uh, we purposefully went to places where we knew that the stories hadn't been told as um, deeply as it was possible. So we went to places like Guatemala, um, Sri Lanka, and Hong Kong as well um, to tell nuanced stories, I guess, without kind of formal restrictions. That's awesome. Sounds, yeah. like, a, like, sounds like a really intense time, and I guess you were talking about that earlier as well. Yeah. Um, so, so now you're currently the co-founder of Storygami. So what is Storygami and what motivated you to build this platform? Yeah, it's kind of the ending of the previous story because Storygami was a way for us to um, um, fix the, the problem that we couldn't, we, we, we kind of came across with Kodok. We would tell those very intense, very nuanced stories, um, being very idealistic, thinking, okay, no matter what, we'll record our experiences in these places and we will tell these stories for what it was. The problem with that is there is zero chance we will get as, as much context as we were after. If we went to Northern Uganda and told a story about child soldiers, there's no way we'll tell the entire story in a three-minute video. Um, that isn't the fault of the storyteller. It isn't the fault of the, um, the audience. It was just how, if you want to tell a good story, you have to be concise. But we wanted to make sure that, okay, if, if um, there was a way to change the technology around video to tell more, to give more context to what you're watching, um, then we should, it's kind of our duty to try and um, see what we can produce. Um, and Storygami came out of just a few sketches, I guess, very early on, where I was like, you know, telling, recording a story in uh, places like Northern Uganda. These really heartbreaking stories, you realize the half an hour interview you're doing with this person will end up being a, a 30 second soundbite. But if at the end, if someone were to view this video and could just click on something, and get the, the entire interview if they wanted to. That should be out there, I thought. So we were kind of faced with the dilemma of, all right, either we kind of have to dumb down our content so that it'd be more kind of digestible for people, or we try to change the technology around the content so that we could tell these stories better. So Storygami kind of came out of that really, really big frustration. It was more, um, I can't continue to be a video journalist until the technology is upgraded. Because I can't tell these stories. You know, we were very idealistic going to Kodok, but at the end of Kodok, it was either we we try and change video, or you know we just stop doing this because it, it it was uh, reductive. I guess was is the word. We try and tell these stories the best way we could, and no matter how good you are as a storyteller, the video video medium, the medium itself, the format isn't it isn't made for deep stories. Um, it's very much two-dimensional, um, and it doesn't have to be. We saw technology happen, uh, technology, uh, technological advances happen with HTML5 video, for example. There is a way to, to add annotations on video, for example. It's very, very rudimentary, very, very uh, simple, but we knew the technology was out there. No one was doing it um, the way we wanted to do it, and I guess it goes back to the same frustration we had very early on. If no one was doing it, then we decided to do it ourselves, um, and that's where Storygami came from, I guess. That's an awesome story. Do you think you're going to go back to uh, being a video journalist after? Yeah, that kind of crosses my mind every time this a huge news story breaks. <laughs> like, <laughs> if something happens, um, and you know, it's usually stories break way after. Because um, as a video, as a journalist, period, you're kind of you tune into stories even before they usually break. You kind of know that things are kind of bubbling around, 
and this might kind of break into a news story at some point. Um, and you know, it watching the news now, I kind of do feel that pull, but there is zero chance I will go back to journalism now. Like, hmm. um, you know, I guess tech entrepreneurship is is my true calling. Um, design for sure is is where I feel most comfortable now. Um, I'm happy to to uh, to use Storygami to tell those stories, but I won't. I don't think. Cool. I was just wondering. Just, it's it's a cool story, regardless. Um, so you guys actually pitched your technology to Richard Branson and the Virgin Media pioneers, um, having them become one of your first major, you know, partners and customers. So how did this unfold, and how did you approach kind of making such a huge partnership happen at a very early stage? Yeah, that was um, that's the story too. Because I mean, we were part of a entrepreneurship program called Virgin Media Pioneers. Basically, Virgin, the Virgin Group, uh, Richard Branson himself and the Virgin Group, um, kind of give support to young entrepreneurs in the UK. Kodok, our previous company, was part of that program. And uh, we, through that program, we got the opportunity to uh, pitch Richard Branson on an idea. And it very much was just an idea, Storygami was. Um, we were still calling it Kodok back then. It was just a prototype of one of our videos with um, extra content inside the video. Uh, on an iPad. So we just went up to his um, house in Oxford <laughs> and uh, showed it to him and actually a, a, a couple of others, other kind of, uh, pan it was a panel of people. We showed him and a few other people at Virgin Media, uh, kind of tech people, and a young British entrepreneur called Jamal Edwards. Um, and they kind of really liked it. They actually saw, they, they had never seen anything like this before executed in this way. And it very much just was like a cool little side project of ours. Um, and just getting getting uh, Richard Branson look at this and say, look, this is a no-brainer. This should be out everywhere and kind of nudging the Virgin Media guy next to him and being like, look, you should totally use this. And it kind of, you know, it, it what what previously was a side project to us, getting that valid validation from someone like Sir Richard Branson was a big deal to us. Um, it meant that maybe we, we, we have something here that could be, um, you know, it could get go beyond just a hunch. At that point, it was just a hunch and a prototype. Um, and getting validation from from those kinds of people means that, okay, we can build a business out of this. I'm pretty sure this this guy says so, and he knows his stuff. So um, we, we uh, after that, Richard Branson kind of introduced us to um, Virgin, the people at Virgin Media who can make it happen. And Virgin Media commissioned us to kind of develop the idea into a full-fledged web series for them. Um, so we pro uh, produced a web series for Virgin Media um, using Storygami technology. And that was kind of our first kind of um, break, I guess. It was the first time Storygami was used out in the wild. Um, that was in 2000, I want to say 12, I think. Um, and after that, it was that, that kind of relationship with Virgin Media kind of blossomed. We then worked with Virgin Atlantic and then Virgin Business. Um, and because um, we were kind of, I guess, incubated in that way, um, other brands came calling. Um, Virgin are very good at PR um, and they you know, lend us their PR at some, sometimes and that, that's a huge deal for a young startup to have that kind of um, big brother, I guess. That relationship has, has kind of got inbound, inbound uh, interest from other brands wanted to do something in the interactive video space. It was just, it was just a really great boost at the best time. Because um, Storygami kind of was was kind of propelled a great deal because of that one opportunity we had, and kind of having the balls to actually going to to go out there and do that um, was the, was the spur. But having the opportunity to do that in the first place um, helped us very much along the way in the early days. 
That's an awesome story. I would love to uh, have the opportunity to sit down and, and show Richard Branson uh, yeah, you know, some, some yeah, cool ideas. <laughs> he's, a, he's a cool guy. He's very much, he's, he's, he's a cool guy, but he's, he's, a, he's, I mean, it's okay to say this, I guess, but he's, he's a massive nerd. Like he's, <laughs> he's not like, I mean, on, on camera, he just puts it on, he's like, he's, he's totally Richard Branson, but out off, off camera, he's kind of introverted and, and shy, weirdly. Um, and when you talk to him, he's he's very kind of soft spoken and kind of really listens. That's one thing I I, uh, I took a, took away from him. He really kind of listens to what you're talking talking about, no matter what kind of craziness happens around around them. He really listens to you and actually gives thoughtful feedback. Um, he's, he's he's been an incredible resource. We we get to go back to him and Virgin um, every so often, usually once a year, just to kind of update him uh, on things we've we've been doing with Storygami, and you know. It's nice that he remembers us, you know. Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. So recently, you guys were accepted to be part of the 500 Startups uh, program. So what was that whole acceptance process like? And, and where are you guys at, uh, you know, currently inside the cohort? Yeah, so 500 Startups. Um, so we actually applied um, once before. So um, when we um, a- applied previously, this was for batch 12, which is the batch before our current batch, the one we're in now, um, was it, so they have, stop 500 startups have different kind of batches around um, the US and in Mexico, I think. So one in San Francisco, one in Mountain View currently, which is where we are now. So we applied to the San, San Francisco batch, batch 12, back in December. Um, and back then we hadn't actually launched our um, front end tool yet. Uh, the tool that lets allows anyone to kind of add interactivity interactivity to their videos. Um, and when we applied, they the we were in Berlin at the time. And when you get the acceptance letter to the interview, they give you two options. You can either kind of fly over to, to San Francisco or Mountain View to interview in person, or you can do it via Skype. Uh, and because this was the first time we had gotten in, an acceptance to an interview at all, um, we were like, "All right, let's do a Skype call and, and see how it goes." Like, we would love to get in five hundred startups. Like, let's let's try our best. Um, and the Skype call kind of sucked, honestly. Like, the, it was it was not the best interview at all. Um, we were in Berlin. The connection wasn't great. It was a group of pretty much everyone um, in one room. It was Marvin Lau, who was kind of head of the San Francisco batch, and he was asking a bunch of questions. We were answering the best way we could. We didn't realize. We didn't know if they were heard us properly, um, and it sucked. But uh, so it was about fifteen minutes long. It was it was all right. Um, and afterwards, we had a bunch of follow up emails and. If you could just imagine as kind of a young startup who hadn't been in any accelerator or incubator at all, uh, we were kind of reading those emails a million times to see, okay, what their intention is behind these emails, um, why are they asking about this one specific thing. So Marvin, a couple of other um, partners, Tristan, for example, emailed us some, uh, some kind of follow-up questions. Um, but I think on Christmas Eve was the day we found out we didn't get in to batch 12. And what happened is, uh, it was like the middle of the night, Marvin had emailed us a uh, kind of really sweet email actually saying, look, we really, really liked you guys. You're a little bit too early because we really look at, well, even the beginnings of traction for you guys is, is key. When it, we like the idea, we love you, like you guys, but um, we strongly encourage you to reapply next time. And you know, at the time we were deciding whether we were going to stay in Berlin. There were all these other considerations as to you know wh- whether we'd get in or not. Um, and it was it was okay. That email was okay because he he told us, look, we don't usually send out these emails to people individually, but I'm telling you now, please do apply for batch thirteen. 
So we're like, okay, fine. Let's uh, take that as what it is and reapply next time. The next time we got an uh, interview uh, acceptance letter, we decided to fly over to San Francisco. Um, and I know there are blogs out there that tell you what this kind of interview process is like. Um, a lot of them say, okay, that's, there's three rounds of interviews for 14 minutes each. And that's kind of what we thought it would be. So we turned up at the Mountain View offices, really loved the space. This is an amazing space in Mountain View. The views are incredible. So we're like, holy, wow, imagine if we get into this place. Um, we walk into the interview, and the interview is uh, Sean Percival, Pornima, and Matt Ellsworth. And the interview, so we, we had prepped for a good two weeks for this interview, for these three rounds of 40 minute long interviews. We walk in, we sit down, Heidi gives the pitch, um, and Matt is really cool and sweet and kind of really loves the product and kind of very, is very encouraging. Sean's just being Sean, very cool. Um, <laughs> asking a bunch of questions. Pronima is super strict and kind of uh, asks very pointed questions, does, does not give anything away with a face, and we're kind of reading the faces, see what it's like. But um, we really didn't get a handle on it. And after 10 minutes, the, the interview was over. And you can imagine our surprise thinking, okay, this is going to be a really long process, all day long interview process, but it was 10 minutes long. We were in and out. Um, and so we had the same experience we had with a Skype call after flying all this way and we were just bummed out. We kind of walked out thinking, all right, we're not going to get in 500 startups then for the second time. That sucks. Um, so we went out, had, um, had some food in Castro Street and flew back to Berlin, kind of really sad, I guess. Uh, but the week later, literally, I think we landed on Monday. We got the acceptance letter on Tuesday to say that we got in. Um, and I remember, so I don't know, okay, I don't think I've ever said this up in, in public at all yet. I don't even think I've asked Ponima this. But what happened after that email, because we were so bummed out, I, there was a curious feeling of freedom knowing that something that you really hoped would happen were, isn't going to happen. And you, you realize when you prep for these interviews, um, you kind of want to, in London, we call it gas it up. I don't know what the equivalent phrase is in, in the US. But you want to gas up your um, startup and yourself to give the perception that you are more than you are. Um, and when you walk into those, uh, those meetings, you, you're not aware that that comes off very obviously to people who are, you know, have seen a million startups before. They know when you're with, whether you're um, kind of bullshitting or not. So when, when, when I thought we didn't get in, I was like, all right, fine. I want to send Purnima an email. So I was sitting at Red Rock Cafe thinking that we didn't get into 500 startups. And I, I remember writing an email, just telling them exactly how I felt. And I was like, look, I realized like maybe we're too early, maybe we're not, but this is one thing you need to know about us. And I basically told them that <laughs> we're probably gonna be the best decision you make for this batch. And I attached a picture of myself and Heidi in a war zone in Southeast Asia and said, look, this is our last job. How many startups can say they've walk through a minefield to get to 500 startups and I just press send. And just thinking, all right, I've got nothing to lose. I might as well just put it all out there. And before that, I kind of wanted to hide that kind of crazy minefield war zone story because that isn't as relevant to startups, but that's very much who we are. That's not something I would have divulged in the interview, even if they asked. But it's after I realized, after I thought I didn't get in, I thought maybe, well, look, this is who we are. Take it or leave it. I don't know if that, if that worked. I haven't even spoken to Ponima about this <laughs> whilst we're here. But 
for some reason, they let us in. Maybe they, they liked us, they liked the traction we had built in the, in the interim. But I think they liked the fact that we are from a different sort. Um, we're not the usual kind of startup. Our story isn't the regular kind of startup. We didn't go to Stanford. We didn't go to any of these other places where every other startup comes from. Of the weirdest origin story for most startups out there. And I think that chimed with them. They realized that, okay, these are different people. They've, walked, they've, done, they've lived a life before running this startup. Um, and maybe it helped. Um, I really should ask Pranima if she even received that email. <laughs> I don't know. I don't <laughs> well, know. It's a, that's a crazy story. I would yeah. love to know the, uh, the official answer, too, if, if we can share it at some point. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to write a blog post about this after, after we leave 500, to, just to say, look, the best thing you could do is to be completely honest with you, because they'll see right through you if you're not. Yeah. Um, and sometimes it works in advantage if you really tell them who you are and, and what you're about. Um, that's what I've realized going through 500. Absolutely. That's a, that's a crazy story. It's an amazing, amazing story. So, you know, now, you know, almost at the end, you get demo days coming pretty soon, I uh, heard you say. Um, so what are some of the, the biggest insights and lessons you've learned inside 500 Startups? A bunch. I mean, it's a, um, a lot of it is really about stripping down um, your story and making sure that your company shines through. Um, uh, right now, we're going through kind of pitch prep. Um, and Heidi is, will be pitching on demo day. Um, a lot, I think a lot really comes down to um, making sure you don't fall into the kind of fallacy of like self-deception. And I, I mean that in a way that a lot of entrepreneurs and startups very early on kind of attach themselves to kind of perhaps false hope or um, things, they, they put a lot more value on things that really aren't that great. Um, and I mean that in the most honest way, I guess, um, hard realism is something that seems to be frowned upon in some circles. Like you kind of want to be as enthusiastic as possible. But, but for me, it makes more sense to be realistic about what you're doing and, and what kind of tracking you've, you've, you've got um, and the things you are doing. Because if, if you're really enthusiastic about something and if you really, really believe in your product, um, there's no need to really put, um, put value in something that, that really isn't there. Um, so, for instance, this throughout this last couple of months, we've um, we've been doing a lot of sales calls, a lot of sales meetings, and kind of um, putting a lot of hope on in, on large large companies. Whatever your sales process is, um, being very realistic about those leads and making sure that um, a deal isn't a deal until it's signed. Making sure that you know you don't put yourself in a position where you're incredibly disappointed on the so about something that really wasn't a thing in the first place. This is something a lot of startups go through. Um, and it, it might sound very harsh and kind of cold almost, but it's better for you yourself, better for you as an entrepreneur, if you put um, the correct value on things. So when amazing things happen, go ahead and celebrate it. But if tough things happened, things aren't that bad. Like, um, and, it, and for me, it's made sense to kind of go through a middle ground where I don't get super excited about um, great things happening, which sucks sometimes, but it also means I, I don't despair when things don't go as expected. Um, and for us, going through 500, you get a lot of different advice about your company, a lot of, um, a lot of bull busting, a lot of people kind of you know, rip you to shreds, um, but the, it's the ones that really have stuck a flag deep in the ground and kind of believe in their product that have kind of come through that. The people who weren't too into their product in the first place are the ones that kind of dissolve um, and do nothing. 
the, the, the entrepreneurs that really have a strong idea about what they're doing and are brutally honest with themselves are the ones that go through this experience um, and come out of it greater than they were. Um, and I think what it really comes down to is just being honest with yourself, honest with, with how you perceive yourself and your company um, and presenting in a certain way. Um, it doesn't mean you, 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 you know, on demo day you turn up and, and you don't show your company in the best light possible. You absolutely do. But um, you have to be honest about where you are as a company. You don't have to be the unicorn right away. You can build yourself up to that. Um, but it'll, it'll be better for you just emotionally, very honest about, about um, what, what's happening with your company and, and whether you have traction or not. Um, and especially when you're talking to seasoned entrepreneurs, seasoned investors, they know where you are as a company. Um, and if, if, you don't, if you don't gas it up too much, I think you're, uh, you're, in, you're in good stead. That's some amazing insights. So let's dive into kind of your day-to-day -day role at StoryGammy as the product guy. What's an average day like for you? It's a difficult question because during 500, it's been tough to regulate a day. I'm, I'm a kind of person who really wants a, a kind of a, 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 um, a regulated, uh, strict <laughs> uh, scheduled day. I think I just do better in that, in that sense. Mm -hmm. Going through an accelerator, that kind of goes out of the window. Um, it's very much, um, here's another English uh, phrase for you, it's kind of kick, bollock, scramble. It's kind of like you turn up, you see what, see what needs to be done. Sometimes it's putting out fires, sometimes it isn't. But as a product designer, my, my role, my key role is very much making sure that the product milestones are, are kept, even though all this craziness is happening. Mm -hmm. um, that, that's, that's kind of <laughs> what my role has become during 500. Usually, um, my, my day starts very early on when I do something that's completely um, not related to my usual day. So it could be writing, it could be something else. It could just be reading, I don't know. So I wake up very early on and do something completely unrelated to my company and my business. Um, and then around 9 o'clock, um, I start sales calls. So myself and Heidi uh, do a lot of direct sales with large companies. Like, you know, we're talking to people like um, Al Jazeera News, that kind of thing. Um, and then after that, it's kind of making sure that there's a big chunk of my day that's purely dedicated to product. Um, whether that be prototyping something, um, looking up uh, new features, and kind of looking at the road ahead, making sure um, the developers are on track in terms of um, the releases. Um, and after that, you, we, we make a point of checking in with each other and making sure everyone's kind of um, on the same page, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. Because especially during around, you know, going through an accelerator, a lot happens all the time. Um, and it's, you know, making sure everyone's marked down as having a specific responsibility of making things, making sure things are on track and things don't go wayward, because it very easily does happen, um, especially with demo days suddenly become this huge looming thing that's happening. A lot of kind of attention goes that way, but there are other things that need to be addressed. Um, so making sure that your responsibility remains intact no matter what happens um, is the main thing for me. So how do you weave storytelling into product and what are the metrics that you focus on for achieving this? Sure. Um, so for us specifically, I mean, storytelling is a very large part of kind of making sure our brand gets out there. We kind of have ended up dog fooding our own product in the sense that we, we put out video blogs using Storygami. We put out um, content um, that talk about interactive video and kind of where we see interact interactive video heading. Um, making sure that people know us as people 
behind the brand, kind of making sure that um, we on whether it be on social, on um, on our blog, on our video blogs, um, everyone very much knows who we are and what we're about. I think Storygami, it's, the technology itself lends itself towards that kind of brand who want to be transparent and want to be kind of want to tell a story. Um, I guess our background as storytellers, as as video creators, kind of lead leads very much into that direction. There's a case to say maybe we don't have to do it. I think it's kind of our duty to do that if if we're producing a product that helps brands, video creators tell their stories better, then we could be our first early adopters and, and test the technology itself. And, and we've been doing okay. We, we, we video blog currently, um, currently every other week. Um, we've been lax recently. But um, the metrics we really look at is um, engagement and retention. Um, a lot of what we do at Storygami in terms of interactive video is making sure all of our products kind of lead back to hard numbers. So for example, if someone were to watch our video um, on our Medium post, for example, where there's a Storygami interactive video there, if someone clicks play, that's a view, that's amazing. But we want to make sure that we get beyond just simple views. But uh, so, so we kind of track every interaction there. Um, we look at how long people spend watching the video, how long, how many uh, extra interactive layers people do access and consume, how long they consume those um, those layers for. Um, it's very, very important for us, coming from the video content space, that um, interactive video for us isn't just novelty, right? You can stick hotspots and, and all kinds of shiny buttons on your video. But for us, Storygami Interactive Video is very much, it's very much pegged to hard numbers and making sure your metrics help you tell your story better. So those interactive elements are, are the things that we look at. The, the metrics are very much in tune to, to the technology we put out there. That's really cool. So what are three most important things that you would recommend for creating effective storytelling? I think, um, whether it be on social, whether it be on any medium out there, whether it be video or uh, straight up blogs, authenticity is at a premium when it comes to startup storytelling. Everyone who reads that kinds of con that kind of content, startup storytelling stuff, is is very attuned to the kinds of stories being put out there by startups. By that I mean everyone knows the same stories that startups tell. So as soon as someone comes along and says tells a different story, tells a story about how maybe sometimes being a founder of startup sucks. Everyone knows that, no one talks about it. So usually authenticity is one thing that I think um, is rare, so is effective. The other thing is making sure that you, you double down on um, a specific medium. So for us, it's got to be video, right? So um, we, we, we blog, we write, um, and we, you know, we're on social too, but our video content is where we, where we put most effort, um, where we put um, a high premium on, where we spend most money, um, where we spend most time. Um, so making sure that uh, you're authentic and you're authentic through a specific medium primarily. It doesn't mean you, you, you ignore social or, or blogs or anything like that, but you double down on one of them. Um, and the third one, if you're talking about startup storytelling, it's very important that internally within the company, you guys make sure that you share your stories internally. I mean, sometimes um, a lot of different people within the company will start blogging or video blogging. Um, 
and therefore they're, they're advocates for your company, for your brand. So making sure that you guys, um, so within, within companies, um, you speak to each other about the kind of things that happen through your day, the kind of things that people are thinking about. So Damiano, our community manager, for example, he puts out a lot of content too himself. Um, sometimes they're related to story sometimes they're not. But it's great to hear stories internally. So sometimes effective storytelling means telling your own stories internally, even if they don't see the light of day. Um, that's been important for Storygami ourselves. It, it builds a closer team, I, I guess. Those are all really important things. Thanks for sharing those. So yeah. what's besides Demo Day, what is next for Storygami in 2015? Well, um, beyond Demo Day, beyond um, everything going well, we're, we're, we're actually thinking of moving to the West Coast, which is a big deal. We, as I say, we're originally from London. We're um, moving over to the West Coast um, and putting a base here. It's a place where um, I think a company our size with our ambitions, um, this is a place to be. It's where greatness is possible, I guess, mm -hmm. um, and then we're going after that. So it's that's that's the main thing for us. It's it's moving kind of operations here. Both founders, myself and Heidi, are, are moving over here um, permanently, um, and that's going to be exciting. Um, aside from that, um, we'll be seeing a lot, uh, a few kind of large brands. Um, so, for example, over the last couple of months after our um, editors come out, our interactive video editors come out, um, we've had a lot of brands using using the video, uh, the tool in-house. Um, over the next couple of months you'll start seeing those around. Um, I'll keep those as surprises, but if you go to storygami.com you'll see a lot of other, a lot of the brands out there using Storygami currently. We're also bringing out a community um, within Storygami. A lot of our current users, for example, have been asking us to create some kind of platform, some kind of forum where they can share their own interactive videos internally, just kind of within the community. And we love talking to our users and it, it makes sense to us to build a community in-house anyway. Um, and aside from that, we're always iterating on features, making sure that um, our features kind of um, come out and shine through. One big feature coming out this week, in fact, is a, a live stream feature. So you'll be able to add interactive layers on a live stream. We're actually doing an interview with um, the one and only Sean Percival for fi from 500 Startups this Thursday. Um, and I'll tweet that directly after, so you'll be able to look at it. But this Thursday, we're, we're, we're interviewing Sean Percival. Um, I'll be interviewing him on a live stream, just kind of as a launch for as a launch um, for the live stream feature we've, we've come out with. So there's a couple of things. Um, well, the main thing in my mind right now is actually moving over to the West Coast. Nicer weather than London, for sure. Yeah, well, that's amazing. I'm looking forward to seeing everything that uh, Storygami is doing in 2015. So what apps, devices, tools are you currently using right now? And are there any books that you're currently reading or are on your recommendation list? Sure. Um, apps and devices. Um, let me think. I've started to delve into Framer.js. Yeah, um, which is a prototype tool. It's interesting. It's something. So there's a couple, a couple of things we're doing internally from the backend um, point of view. That something like Framer makes a lot more sense for us to iterate on and kind of just just see and kind of play with. Um, I, I find it very interesting. There are other kind of prototyping tools out there. Pixit, for example. Um, and that's really come from recommendations from you know founders in the batch at, at 500. They kind of um, ushered me towards prototyping using Framer um, and things like Pixate. So that's something I'm playing with currently. Um, aside from that, no, I mean usually the flow is um, something like Framer or Sketch, um, and then going straight into code. 
No, no other tools come to mind. I mean, currently, it's, it's, we're, we're kind of heads down, you know? So it's sort mm -hmm. of like, I would, there's a couple of other, other interesting apps I'd love to try out, but like now I'm just kind of heads down using this, the, the things that I've, I've been using for a while. After demo day, after the investment comes through, we're good to go. So I'll start <laughs> experimenting. Yeah. I have more time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that, that's fine. That's awesome. Those are two good recommendations. So um, do you have any last thoughts or, or personal models that you live by and you think others should know about? Links back to um, the blog post I wrote that I guess you guys found me on from. Yes. Um, founders, not regular people. So specifically, when, when I go and read that blog post now, it kind of um, makes me think about the time, the time, the, the period we were in as a startup when I wrote that. We were going through a bunch of very early angel seed, like an angel round, um, going through investors' doors. Um, and it's very difficult to keep your enthusiasm up, keep your confidence up. And I always kind of return back to that blog post just as a, as a way to remind myself that, you know, as a founder, you're doing something incredibly heroic, um, doing something incredibly um, rare. It isn't creating a myth around the founder at all. It's just purely for, for, for those of us who kind of who come from a different background and are in this space and are trying to do something significant, it's difficult to maintain that sense of courage. Um, and I think beyond all the skill set, all the things that you can learn as a founder, the thing that I always come down to is, is knowing that your courage is the thing that you have at your disposal. Um, and I guess that's not a motto, but it's something I always return to. It's kind of stripping away all the stuff that you get from medium posts and blog posts and books that you read. Um, it really comes down to you making sure that you have the balls and the courage to kind of follow through with what you believe. Um, no matter what anyone tells you, what anyone kind of pushes you into, or um, even flat out tells you, you that you're not going to do a certain thing, because you get a lot of that too in startup land. Um, and always coming back to making sure that you have the courage to screw those guys and continue anyway. That's something I, I come back to. And related to, I guess, learning out loud. So the reason I write those things, the reason I put them out there is, honestly, I don't really think that anyone's going to read them. It's sometimes good for myself to look back on after I've written them years down the line to, to look at what I'm thinking of at the time. So for I would encourage a lot of people to... Um, to either journal or like write um, your thoughts down um, to give them clarity. I know Julie Zhu, another designer and, and, and uh, voice out there, talks about this. Um, the reason people write those posts sometimes are just for themselves, to make sure that their, their thinking is clearer. Because once you, you're in the act of writing something down, you're thinking through things precisely. Um, so I would encourage people to, to write thoughts down um, as you go through the journey. Um, because sometimes the, the best things come, through, come to light when you're writing something down, not just jumbled up in your mind. Um, so I encourage people to do that, I guess. That's a very long-winded answer to that. Sorry, there's no, 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 there's no, no quick motto, I guess. But, no, that's awesome. And we'll definitely link to that post because uh, I read it and was very touched and, and moved by it and thought it, it struck a nail on the head, um, you know, bang on. So thanks so much for taking the time to, to chat with us today, for writing that blog post and, and, and sharing your story and insights. I uh, really appreciate it, Guy. Of course. No, thanks so much, guys. Well, that's about it for this episode of Hack to Start. You can find all the important links beneath the show. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, at Hack to Start, and sign up for our newsletter to know about all the latest episodes, behind-the-scenes content, and more. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.